Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Dave Doty. Also with me today are Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hi. And I'm Will. David Doty is an associate professor of computer science at UC Davis. He is broadly interested in problems at the intersection of physics, chemistry, biology, and computation. Specifically, how certain molecular systems can be interpreted as doing computation themselves. He seeks to understand the fundamental logic and physical limits to computation by such means. Dave, hi. Hi, uh, good to be here. Good to have you here. So maybe to start, could you tell us a bit about what your um, group is researching and, and what your research interests are? Yeah, so uh, I'm sort of uh, involved in three broad ideas right now, I guess I'd call them uh, you know, within this field of molecular programming, uh, th theory, experiment, and software. So there's uh, the uh, theory that most of my students work on, so all my sort of uh, graduate students work on theory, and specifically this is, uh, you know, theory in the style of the theory of computation. So it might look a little different from, uh, you know, chemical theory or, or uh, physics theory. Uh, where, you know, we largely prove theorems, and we prove theorems uh, about mathematical models of, you know, computation, but specifically the kinds of computation that can be done by physical systems like uh, chemical reaction networks uh, or uh, self-assembling DNA. Uh, but then I've also, and that's what I've done for, since I was in grad school, uh, but I've also more recently got involved in uh, a lot of software development, and that I work on largely with undergraduates, although I, there was a software project with my PhD student recently on uh, sort of chemical reaction network simulation. But the software is largely intended to uh, aid in experimental design for DNA nanotechnology. So specifically to software programs called uh, SCAD Nano, which is like a web-based port of the very popular CAD Nano software uh, that most people use for designing DNA origami. And then another one uh, called DSD for doing DNA sequence design. Uh, and they're both informed by the, the one experiment I've published on where we needed to do a lot of structural design, and I use CAD Nano a lot for that. Um, and uh, we also needed to design a lot of DNA sequences to obey some very specific constraints, uh, and the DSD software is sort of the outgrowth of that, trying to make it useful for, for other people. And then I'm involved in some experimental collaborations as well. I don't have a wet lab myself, but I'm, uh, you know, on Zoom with some people who do, and the software is many times informed by the needs we have in those experiments. So I, I really want it to be sort of useful for people who are actually in the lab and favor sort of, you know, uh, practical features that really are useful when you're, you know, sitting there on the bench or sitting there at your desk knowing tomorrow you're going to go to the bench and you want you want things set up nicely. So. so what's it like doing experiments over Zoom? Are you kind of sitting on, on the bench with them? Or, or... Oh, it's much easier than doing them at the bench, let me assure you. <laughs> you uh, you, you mostly sit there and hear people describe stuff that they had to spend, you know, 12 hours doing at a bench. Um, but yeah, I, I, the one experiment I was uh, sort of, in, you know, in charge of or, or jointly in charge of 
uh, you know, made me very interested in continuing to do that kind of thing. Uh, and since I don't have a wet lab, it's, you know, it's largely through collaborations. Uh, it's, but yeah, it's, uh, of course you can't be as involved and it's also the case that, um, even if there's things that can be done remotely and often there can, a lot of the software we have to design can be done remotely. A lot of the design of the experiments can be done remotely. I understand firsthand it can be difficult if you're the one kind of in charge of the experiment to slice off little things for people to do. A lot of times it's just easier when you know you're the one who's going to be there at the bench to just do everything yourself so you understand it all because it can be just, just as much effort to explain to another person, hey, here's how to do this thing so that I will really be able to go in the lab and do something. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's not that easy to collaborate remotely, but I try to find what I can do and can be helpful with. Out of the experiment theory and computation, which comes easier? Um, boy, I don't know. I mean, I th there's only one I kind of got good at, which is theory. So uh, in some sense, you could say that's the one that came easiest because I, I feel the most competent doing it. Um, I think... Uh, with everything, there's a kind of a temperament that pays off, and I think I have a temperament that pays off well in theory, and I was able to do experiments, but I, I don't have the temperament of the real Olympic-level experimentalists I know, uh, of whom Boya is one, uh, but, but others I've known are extremely meticulous people, uh, I mean, who you know, keep extremely detailed lab notebooks, extremely detailed notes of what they're doing in the lab, are able to reproduce anything they did from any day. Say, like, what, what did you do on July 17th, 2019? They could just repeat exactly what they did. Uh, I was never that meticulous, and I think I was able to bumble through and make things work anyway. But, um, but yeah, so I, I would say I don't have that temperament. And if I wanted to be you know, known primarily as an experimentalist, well, maybe I'd work on developing that temperament, but it's it's the kind of thing where I, I think, like, okay, if you have it, then, uh, yeah, boy, it really pays off. And if you don't have it, it pays off to pay attention to the people who have it and at least try to imitate them, at least to whatever extent you can do things the way they do. So I think to whatever extent the experiment that, that I worked on, um, along with, with uh, Damian Woods, uh, the, the, to whatever extent that experiment worked, when I was doing the experiments, it was because I was imitating people who were much more careful than I was, and at least getting more towards how they do things. Um, and then, yeah, software is like this thing I was trained to do as an undergraduate in computer engineering, but then never really did it in industry, and also never really did it in science in, in graduate school or post it. It was ironically not till I needed to write scripts for experiments right? Because how else are you going to keep track of 350 different DNA strands? And so it was sort of, ironically, I didn't get into programming, uh, despite being a computer scientist for decades until I needed to do wet lab work. And then it was very useful to be able to write scripts to automate stuff. And, uh, but I'm still kind of learning how to do software, scientific software development as a branch of research. I'm sort of I don't know exactly how to do it yet, but I don't know how to do it in industry either. So I, um, so I just have these two, you know, these few pieces of software that I like. We use them in the projects I'm involved with, and I, I hope other people will find them useful. But yeah, there's uh, 
I'm also not, you know, quite as on steady ground there because it's not the the primary thing I had done until I just started one of them in like 2018. You're, you kind of already answered the question that I was going to ask, but it was, it was actually like a, it was going to be um, like, how has your experience doing that one experiment affected the way that you do theory or software development? Like after, afterwards, or has it changed anything? Yeah. So, so it caused me to do software development, whereas I would not have been interested. I mean, I, I saw, I saw CAD Nano get presented at the very first F Nano conference I ever went to in 2009. And I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. I think, you know, I was a grad student. I think at the time, Sean Douglas was still a grad student, or maybe he had just graduated. And I remember thinking, wow, that's great. I, I wish I, you know, I'm a computer scientist too, but I wish I could have learned to do that, but I don't know how to do that. So I, it never even crossed my mind to do anything remotely like that until I really needed tools like that for the wet lab experiments. And it, to me, it was like, it is absolutely no coincidence that CAD Nano was, is just used by tons of people who find it very useful. And it was designed by somebody who did not only do software. I mean, Sean Douglas wrote CAD Nano, but what else did he do? Well, he developed the first sort of 3D DNA origami. And it's, it's very obvious that his experience in the wet lab trying to get those, those 3D shapes to form you know, informed the development of CAD Nano, because there's a whole lot that it does that clearly is there because it was, it was useful to him. So, so yeah, so it, um, I think like, uh, you know, software can be written by people who don't use it, but it's, there's something, they, I think they have this term in the software world called dog fooding. Like when you use your own application for something, you're eating your own dog food, they call it. And yeah, I think I think it's very helpful to uh, to have somebody on your team who needs to use the software for something real. Uh, and whenever you know, whenever I see like a feature request come in from somebody who's actually you know in the lab trying to make something work, I just drop everything else. Like every kooky idea I thought maybe would be something to add, I just say no, forget this. This is somebody who really needs this, and it's often mundane sounding stuff, but it's you know that that's what's useful to somebody in the lab. So I think that helps. Um, and as far as theory, I think it's, I still do wacky out there theory that's never going to be useful for anything because I find the mathematics elegant and fun, but I've drifted towards focusing on, uh, problems that are maybe less mathematically exciting because they might be, you know, more practical. And so, so, and this, this is a tension always in the, uh, at least I, I know in the theoretical computer science community, it's probably somehow there in all theory versus experiment, but where the, the thing valued in theoretical computer science primarily, I mean, the thing that gets your paper into the top venues or not is, is the mathematics really difficult? Is it really deep? Or, you know, and once in a while, somebody can publish like a really short, elegant proof because it's one of these so-called proofs from the book. But, you know, most papers aren't that most people don't have this insight of some really great thing and it only, but it's a very simple idea too. Most of the time you're getting judged on, is this really deep? Is it really difficult to prove? And it's a proxy for somehow, like you aren't just cranking the handle, like you did something that really took effort. But that, there's this tension between that and being sort of practical and useful, you know, to, to people that are trying to make something work, say in a wet lab, you don't want something complicated. You want something simple. You want something that's easy to see why it works. And it's very difficult to find a problem that if you solve it would be equally interesting to somebody who wants to 
do a wet lab implementation and somebody who wants to see really beautiful mathematics. And when I see a result like that, I'm amazed. Like, this is, this is just awesome. When there's beautiful theory behind it and it works in the lab, it's just, it's, it's quite rare. So I, I've drifted more towards that, but it's, you know, those problems are hard to find. So I, I probably reduced my research output as a result, like holding out for these beautiful problems that actually you can then, if you solve them, you can walk in the lab and try it. Uh, which is not the case with most of the kinds of theory I've done, where it's sort of more like uh, somebody could try this maybe 80 years from now when we develop all the scaffolding and engineering we need to, to do something that complicated. Do you have any favorite examples of these problems that are written in, in this metaphorical book that are, are relevant to molecular programming? Uh, okay, so here's one where there's there's no necessarily theorem attached to it, but... There's this recent paper uh, with, boy, I'm going to, okay, let me make sure I get all the authors. I think it's um, uh, uh, Dio uh, and um, Chris Wintersinger and Anastasia Ashova and William Shi, uh, who published this paper on what they call crisscross self-assembly. So it's essentially... Not quite DNA tile self-assembly. Often when we talk about DNA tiles, we're talking about little hunks of DNA, maybe one strand, maybe a, a few strands, maybe a whole origami is a tile. There's a lot of work like that that, that uh, Greg Tikamaroff and Philip Peterson and Lulu Chian did. But it's not quite tiles, but it's still like monomers that come together, and they call them slats. But um, although, you know, they weren't, like proving theorems in the paper, there is a fairly simple sort of theorem to be proven that for these things to uh, grow in the absence of a seed, which is what they wanted, they wanted to do seeded self-assembly. So if you add the seed, they grow into a big polymer. If you don't add the seed, they don't. There is a very elegant theory behind that for why it works. And then they went in the lab and made it work. And it's it's one of the more beautiful marriages of, you know, simple but elegant and beautiful theory and then you know making it work in the lab that i've seen in, in a while so yeah i would say that uh yeah so there, there's a recent example yeah sometimes the beauty of the field is the combination of theory theory and experiment you um you mentioned that you went to your first dna conference in 2009 so i wonder how you feel um about for example the conference when you were a graduate student, and how uh, do you notice any difference between the time when the field was at the beginning stage? I'll say two thousand and nine, still pretty young, and versus now. Let's see. I guess back th uh, first, I felt pretty intimidated because it uh, it had way more sort of hardcore experimental talks than I was expecting. I thought it would be mostly kind of theory, and it was like this perfect half and half. Uh, but I didn't understand anything that was going on with the experimental talks. Uh, of course, I also struggled with the theory talks that weren't on the exact thing I studied, but, um, but that felt, that felt more like, ah, you know, I bet if I really sat down, I could understand those. I just need to pick my time wisely. But with the experiments, it's like, how could I ever hope to wrap my head around this? And I remember there was somebody in the audience, uh, who, uh, I think might might have been Shi Chen. I'm not sure, but it was some that student at the time 
who seemed to have an interesting question for every single talk. And I just thought, how on earth does one person understand enough about every one of these talks to ask a riveting question that the speaker is excited to answer? Um, and I think the answer is, oh, just expose yourself to it enough, because it was a couple years later that I joined Eric Winfrey's lab as a postdoc, where every group meeting felt like that, where it might be somebody proving a theorem about reachability relations and chemical reaction networks, or it might be somebody showing their latest data on trying to land DNA origami onto photolithography etched surfaces and talking about divalent cations, and it was just, um, yeah, just whoever could follow what was going on would ask a question, and I had no idea what was going on for months, probably years, but eventually it sort of seeped in, and I was very grateful for that opportunity. And I, I think to that extent, DNA is probably, it's the same today, where it's somehow just this, I love this two, or actually this three-track, I love the three-track system, track A on mostly theory, track B on mostly experiments, track C on whatever, and I just love posters too, I think they're a great way to learn stuff, and um, I, I feel like that is somehow or another the unique sort of strength of DNA compared to nearly any other conference I've been to, that we do this half-and-half half thing where each side doesn't always necessarily understand, I mean, some people try to straddle both, most people are kind of more one, more track B or more track A, but there's a mutual respect, and um, uh, and I, I think that that's somehow just very unique. You don't see that in most 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 conferences that try to do something like, oh, let's do a little experiment, a little theory. They kind of lean really one more one way or the other, and then the other camp kind of feels left out there. But I, um, yeah, I don't feel that way about DNA, and I, you know, I, I I want that to be preserved at DNA. Like I like the fact that. Everybody on the program committee reviews papers in both tracks, no matter where they come from. They can be pure experimentalist. They're going to be assigned at least one paper where they're reading proofs of theorems. And, you know, maybe not quite understanding it, but guess what? The theorists don't quite understand the proofs either. And if, you're, if you've never done anything but prove theorems, you're going to be looking at AFM images or fluorescent, you know, plots or something. And again, you won't have as much to say about that, but at least, like, people who work in some area are going to hear what are the first thoughts somebody has who's just totally outside of your area of expertise but interested in the general thing you're doing, what are the first thoughts they have? I think it's very valuable to sort of hear that, even if it's not as, like, you know, uh, necessarily useful as the, you know, the, the comments from people closer to your area of expertise. So that's, yeah, that's my favorite part about the DNA conference. How did you find out about the DNA conference you went to? Was that your first experience of molecular programming? So, I, I mean, I found out about the field from my advisor, who himself, I'm never sure quite what attracted him to this. It was I was in his group, and we were just doing nothing but theory. And one day, he, he sent an email to the department saying, I'm going to teach a seminar course on nanoscale self-assembly. And I mean... What we were studying before then was things like Hausdorff, like like fractal dimension and information theory, and just pure pure mathematics and theoretical computer science. And then he says, "I'm going to teach a course on nanoscale self-assembly." And we just thought, "What? What are you talking about? Um, like, do we do we need to take away the car keys?" I, I, like, uh, and 
And then he came in and he, he had, like, worked through some of what I consider to be, like, the foundational papers. And I, I don't know what, I, I to this day, I don't know what made him do that. Maybe he was uh, thinking, like, oh, this could be, like, a more practical application of what we do. Maybe it was tough getting grant money for pure theory. And this was, to this day, I don't know. But he somehow got interested and then showed us some of these papers, like uh, uh, Paul Rodeman and Eric Winfrey's paper on... Uh, the program size complexity of, of self-assembling squares and uh, and some of uh, uh, the work that, that John Reif had done on self-assembly and Ned Seaman, who did mostly experiments, but he's done some some good theory. And, and there was just, and it was like, wow, there is a lot of theory of computing in nanoscale self-assembly. Who, who would have thought it? And uh, so that got me into it, and then somehow or another found out, oh, a lot of the papers I had read, they were published in the DNA conference, so when we got our first paper, me and some, some uh, uh, friends, Matt Paddett and Scott Summers, that my, they had already published some papers, but the first one I wrote on the subject was with them, and we thought, yeah, the DNA conference is the natural place to send it, and it was in Arkansas that year, and we were in Iowa, so it was easy to drive. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have to pay for plane tickets, so we were like, yeah, let's do it. And we went there, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Was it love at first sight? Did you know when you went there, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, or did it take a bit of convincing? I mean, I I did feel, yeah, I mean, I loved, I did love the conference. I certainly felt more at home in that conference than the couple others I had been doing, more pure theoretical computer science. Um, it was also the field itself. Somehow, my my PhD, I shifted topics a couple times, like really big shifts. Um, and the last one was this one from more just pure theoretical computer science, nothing to do with molecules, nothing to do with chemicals, into this tile self-assembly stuff, but the algorithmic aspects of it. And I had just been struggling a lot with the pure theory, struggling to come up with ideas, struggling to prove something struggling to get it accepted to decent venues, it kind of slowly dawned on me, ah, I don't think that many people think about this stuff, and that's why, you know, it's not published very much at the, the top theoretical computer science venues, and then somehow suddenly my last year, my, it was like my seventh year of my PhD, I hadn't done anything on self-assembly or molecular anything, and then just, it somehow seemed so much easier in the sense that, oh, I, okay, I got, um, you know, four papers really quickly, and uh, and people seemed excited about them, and they got more citations than the other stuff I had done. So I just thought, yeah, I, I way prefer working on this. It felt more like, oh, cool, I'm on the ground floor of something. This is, I'm not picking at the, you know, what's left on the tree after everybody else has gotten to it. It's like there's, this stuff feels fundamental. Um, so, and, and yeah, honestly, so, some of it, you know, don't, don't let any of my theoretical computer science friends hear this, but yeah. Some of it is maybe a, a little easier than the mountainous algebra that you have to learn and master in order to do pure theoretical computer science nowadays. And so that, that fits me better because I'm okay at math, but I'm not great at it. And so I, uh, I, I can bite off stuff I'm able to chew here, but still do something that I feel is important and, and beautiful in its own way. So... So yeah, I haven't really looked back from the molecular stuff since it just started working in my last year in my PhD in a way that the, the other stuff didn't for me. You mentioned that you changed the topic a, f a few times. I feel that for graduate students, sometimes it's, very, it's a very big decision to change the area or the topic. So how was the experience for you? 
Yeah, well, so it's, first of all, it's hard to do without changing advisors. So the first one was forced on me by my first PhD advisor left the university to go to Canada, and I didn't want to go with him. And so in some sense, I had to switch topics. And by that point, had started to get interested in theoret. I was doing more kind of uh, um, uh, optimization, kind of this you know evolutionary algorithm type of stuff that I was starting to get disinterested in. So that was sort of forced on me by, well... I'm not going to work for that advisor anymore. I got to find a new one. I've been starting to get into theory and uh, th this new advisor seems okay. And then I worked on pure theory. And then I, the second thing I did is kind of rare. I switched topics while keeping the exact same PhD advisor because he had gotten interested in this new topic. So uh, yeah, in some sense, I, I was lucky that he got interested in this field that that seemed to work better for me than the the thing that he was sort of normally doing. But yeah, normally it's somewhat difficult because it's, you know, what what are you going to switch to? Well, you you should do something your advisor knows something about. It doesn't, you know, you by the end you'll be an expert in it even more than them, but if they're going to be your advisor, they need to be able to say something about it. So you can't really switch to a topic that they don't know anything about because what's the advisor for? But often I think this... Uh, choice comes up if somebody goes from PhD to postdoc, because it's, again, I, I somehow pulled this off with my, my postdoc that it was on stuff I already knew how to do, but most people find they get a PhD, they've been thinking about this topic, and then, yeah, there's people kind of in their field who offer postdocs, but they're, you know, if somebody else has money, it's usually for something specific, and it's rare for that specific thing to be the exact next thing you wanted to do after your PhD, so then you're you're faced with this choice like, well, okay, I I want to continue in academia, but should I switch to this thing? And then, yeah, it's like, uh, but, you know, that, that could be a very good thing to develop this sort of new expertise, but, you know, it may not always be the best thing, but it might be just be sort of forced on you by, um, you know, the, the desire to keep doing research and try to, you know, try to get a permanent job, and in the meantime... Uh, you know, you take a postdoc somewhere. So, but yeah, but it's it's one of those things where it's not always the right thing to do because what do they tell you about your PhD? Like, well, the the goal is to become an expert in one thing and get it so people, if they know your name, they know it for that, and that's hard to do if you're bouncing around too much. So, uh, but you know, neither should you stick with something you hate uh, because, yeah, you you can't enjoy doing research for a living on something you hate. You have you have to like something about it. So. If you really hate a topic, that's a sign that, yeah, it might be time to switch, and that might mean it's time to, you know, to somehow switch advisors or move to a postdoc with somebody new, but who knows? Yeah, that's, every situation is different. Did you always know you wanted to go into academia? Um, not when I started grad school. It's, yeah, when you, most grad students I know, I mean, a lot of computer science grad students... Uh, want an industry job, but most theoretical computer science uh, students want an academic job, and when I see those applicants, I think, wow, but they have a lot more foresight than I did. I didn't, I didn't have any idea. But a few years into my PhD, after hanging around with professors and watching, like, okay, well, wh what's your day-to-day -day life like? It's like, oh, I, I wouldn't mind it if my day-to-day -day life was like that, so... Uh, so yeah, by the end of my PhD, I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd like to go for that. And despite moving into the molecular stuff, I, I knew I was 
interested enough in non-practical problems that I probably didn't want an industry research job where I'd, you know, do, maybe doing research, but somehow tied to some product or profitability. I knew like, yeah, I'd, I think I probably want, you know, a, a research job where I can pick what I want to do and where that thing doesn't ever have to make any money. And that, you know, that's generally academia. So. And, uh, did you find that your, or have you found that your day-to-day -day life now is the day-to-day -day life that you expected to have based on what you saw your professors doing? Um, it's pretty close. I mean, cause you, you know, there's also this thing that, yeah, people will say, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of faculty look back wistfully on being a grad student or a postdoc, and you may not look back wistfully on uh, the lower salary of being a grad student, and certainly not the fear and uncertainty of, like, knowing that your current job is going to end in a year or two and not knowing what you're going to do after that. Like, nobody nobody longs for that, because that, that's the stressful part of it. But yeah, there are a lot of faculty who look back wistfully because it's like... Uh, as a faculty member, what do you do? Well, you you basically do uh, a lot of the stuff you did as a grad student or a postdoc, plus lots of other things, and, and almost all the extra stuff is stuff you don't like. It's service and, um, you know, committee work and so forth. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I sort of baked that, I priced that in because I was well aware, like, well, yeah, if you're, if you're faculty, you... You do the fun parts and you do the not fun parts too, and the non-fun parts are they're taking about as much time as I expected, which is like uh, some, but but not everything, and so I'm happy. Yeah, I get to spend at least you know I would say half my time on uh, on uh, research and problems, and even within like teaching, the, the the kinds of things I like to do for teaching. I mean, nobody likes grading exams or or dealing with with you know like with uh, requests for. For some, but they, but there are parts of teaching I like very much, and so if I take, all right, what are the parts of teaching I like, and what are the parts of, of research I like, I spend, yeah, at least half my time on that. It's not like this nightmare some people paint for me, where you, you'll hear them say, like, oh, I spend 90% of my time writing grants. I wish I could do science, but I can't do science anymore, because I just, I do nothing but write grants all the time. Or some people enjoy it. Some people are like, that's all they want to do is, you know, write grants and let, let other people do the work of the grants while they have the vision to write it, but I... Luckily, like, I don't want that, and I don't have that either. I, you know, I spend, you know, uh, a few weeks a year on that, and the rest of the time I'm doing the actual science instead of the, the meta science of writing grant applications. So, but I think I'm somehow lucky there, like that everybody's mileage varies on that as well. Was it always like that, or did you have to learn some lessons along the way to get your, your life to this point? Um... No, I mean, as far as just specifically about the grants, I I feel I got lucky. I mean, I, I did seek out to help writing grants when I was a postdoc. Um, and I remember thinking, I wish I would have done it when I was a PhD student. Although when it came time for me to give my PhD students that opportunity, it was that similar thing to being in charge of experiments where I, I was like, okay, we got to get this grant application written. And uh, it would be more work for me to slice off things for people to do than for me to just do them, so I, I ended up uh, fumbling on that and, and not actually getting my students involved with, with helping to write the grants. Uh, uh, but when I was a postdoc, I did uh, partially because I wanted the experience and partially because the fellowship I had was ending and I didn't want to leave yet, so I, I needed to get money to, to stay on. And that was helpful because it was sort of, 
like like anything, like in a PhD, onboarding slowly where I was writing it with my advisor who had a lot more experience and I helped a lot, but it, you know, it's the kind of thing where if I wouldn't have been there, the grant, you know, still could have happened. But if, if they wouldn't have been there, it would, it probably would have been much worse. Cause I, there was just lots of stuff they knew how to do. But then once, once I was involved in that once, then the next grant application I wrote, it was like, okay, well, I, I know what it's supposed to look like now. I just have to do that again on this new topic. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's like anything where there's this sort of apprenticeship where probably the best way to do it is to be kind of there to help out while somebody who's really done it a lot is calling the shots. And then once you've been involved to that degree, now you see what to do yourself. And um, yeah, so it's it's not all that it's not all that intimidating, you know, like it like it was before I wrote my first grant where that how do you do this? How, how do you do this thing where you convince the NSF or somebody to give you money? And it's like, oh, you. You, you do like you do when you write a paper. You, and in fact, in some ways, it's easier than a paper. Because with a paper, you have to make everything work. With a grant, you don't have to make anything work. You just have to have some ideas. And, you know, maybe be convincing that they could work. But, you know, you don't actually have to make it work. There's just, uh, You just have to make it sound like, hey, maybe this could work. So, in some senses, it's easier to write. Molpix is sponsored by Telebit Nanosystems. Telebit designs and produces DNA nanostructures as well as standard and customized scaffold DNA strands. They would be happy to set up a call to discuss your project in more detail. If you are interested, please visit their website at tillybit.com or contact them at info at tillybit.com. That's tillybit spelt T-I-L-I-B-I-T. You mentioned that there are um, a few things as for PhD students or postdoc to be stressed about. I wonder, um, how did you deal with the stress along the way? Yeah, uh, I guess I, yeah, I did spend a lot of time uh, as a grad student kind of angry. Um, I remember just being angry that, oh, like it's, you know, it's really tough to get papers, you know, you have to get these papers into these top venues for, for computer scientists conferences, you know, we treat conferences like, like most fields treat journals, but you're trying to get into these venues, it's hard. If you get it in now with a conference, you have to you know, uh, you have to like pay to go there. And, uh, so yeah, maybe I didn't deal with it super well, but I, uh, you know, eventually I sort of, um, became a little more Zen about it. So, but I said, yeah, I, I don't think I can sort of prescribe like, Oh, here's the, the meditation exercises I did. It was more like, Oh, okay. I just, I don't know, spent a lot of time like t talking to other people, you know, sometimes like commiserating with other grad students, uh, yeah, I don't know. All I can say is yeah, it can be frustrating and sort of scary. And, you know, of course, it depends what your career goals are. But it, for 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 many people, the, the stress is sort of like, uh, you know, if you're gunning, say, for a you know tenure-track faculty job. That's not everybody, but if you're gunning for a tenure-track faculty job, there's this point where you slowly kind of look around and do the counting and realize, like, Whoa! There's this many of us, and there's the, the, that many positions, and yeah, not all of these people want that position, but some large number want it, and it, it can be kind of frustrating to to sort of think about and deal with. But, um, but yeah, I would say like I I think when I was in grad school near the end, I was thinking, okay, I I don't know how to do anything, but do but get a job doing research as faculty. I what else could I possibly do? But then when I was in my postdoc, even though I was ostensibly like better at it and better positioned to get it, 
but had no idea. You know, I hadn't done any interviews yet. I was sort of, uh, you know, somewhat sanguine about the fact, hey, this might not work. It was somehow, I don't know, I accepted it much more because when by the time I had that, I thought if I got to that point, I'm like in my mid or late 30s and I don't have that permanent job yet, that I'd think, oh, if I don't get it, it means I wasted all of my 20s and half of my 30s trying to do this. But by the time I got there, I didn't feel that way. I sort of felt like, oh, okay, if I, if I take an industry job now, then uh, cool, at least I got to, to do all this fun stuff, and I probably won't like the industry job as much, but I, by that point, I got to the point where I thought, oh, I would rather have had this experience, and then I don't get a tenure-track faculty job, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll find something else. Uh, now, that said, this is an easier thing for computer scientists to say, because computer scientists... Uh, you know, in the current year, tend to have not much trouble finding, you know, industry jobs. Uh, I don't know what it's like if you're pure biology or pure chemistry or something. Maybe maybe it's also good there. But uh, anyway, it's... Um, uh, so yeah, so somehow, like, I was more stressed as a graduate student than I would be later, even when I had some of the same worries that could have been stressing me out. So... Um, and I also remember thinking as a graduate student, oh, you know, I, I don't have a permanent job. Why can't I just find a job and I get it and then I move to that city and I just stay there and I don't keep moving around. And admittedly, there's some people where if they have families or something and they don't want to keep moving them around, this can be a real issue. But the, the idea of bouncing around seemed much more stressful before it happened than after it happened. But af after I had moved between, you know, two postdocs. I took one postdoc, then I took another, and then I got this job. It was sort of like, oh, like, I've just moved to these different cool cities, and I've met other people who did the same thing. Like, they, you know, we ended up in the same city. They were somewhere else before, and it it seemed like less of a thing to worry about after it happened than before. But again, I don't want to say, like, people shouldn't worry about it, because sometimes they, yeah, they just have, you know, I, I didn't have kids that I had to worry about, and some people do, and that, that can be more stressful, but, um, it's one of those things where it's, yeah, it's actually, in my experience, was not all that bad to, to move around to different places, but seemed before it happened, like, because I didn't know anybody else doing that. Everybody else I knew, they graduated college, they got a job, and, you know, they were, like, vice president of the company by the time I got my PhD, and I was like, oh, why can't I just do that instead of bouncing around like this? But now the bouncing around is like, awesome, I got to bounce around, and they were just stuck in that job, and... Uh, so anyway, it's, um, yeah, my perspective shifted, but I'm, I'm not sure what I did to, to shift the perspective, but it definitely did. Have any of those experiences shaped how you now lead your research group? So, yeah, I mean, it, it comes across, I guess, if, if people want advice, because I, I notice uh, that, you know, with, with some of my graduate students, they have this similar sort of, uh, you know, drive to say, okay, like I, like they've already moved, you know, generally they've moved to Davis to get their PhD and are thinking this was already one move too many and I'm going to have to do another one after this, but I only want it to be one. And yeah, I tried to say, well, you know, maybe you should do that, but it's also worth trying to look at this as, as an adventure, but it, you know, again, it, it all depends on, I mean, I'm not saying like anybody's wrong to, to, to want one thing or another, uh, just that my personal experience was that it didn't seem nearly as bad after I did all that bouncing around as it seemed like it would be before. Um, so I try to encourage people to, to, to think about that. Um, 
And um, yeah, primarily I just try to think about, okay, like I, I felt like when I was in grad school, I didn't really know anybody and I didn't have any sort of connections. And I just tried to go to the conferences and tried to publish papers and tried to somehow meet people. So I, I certainly want to, you know, in my group, I want to sort of, now that I know people in the field, I want to help my own students to sort of make connections. Uh, so um, I'm sort of cognizant of that, but, uh, but yeah, they all have their own, own goals for what they want to do. So. On the topic of connections, can you tell us the story about your unique proposal and wedding? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, uh, as I said, I was involved in this experiment uh, from my postdoc, but it sort of continued even after I got my faculty position because uh, we had a, a lot more to do at that point. Uh, and um, part of that experiment involved... Um, so that was a, a seeded, you know, one of the things it did was seeded self-assembly. So what we really wanted the self-assembly to do was algorithms. That's what it's about. But the key thing for this mode of doing algorithmic self-assembly is it's got to be seeded. You got tiles, they're going to attach to each other, these DNA tiles, and it only works if that happens in the presence of a seed. The seed actually encodes the input to the, uh, to the system that then the tiles do information processing on. Uh, and we primarily figured out, uh, how they worked by using an atomic force microscope, so an AFM. And if you've ever used an AFM, it's, uh, one of the trickiest instruments to use. It's not just push button. There's a whole lot of, uh, art to it. There's a whole lot of parts of it where... Uh, the physical dexterity of your hands really matters. Like when you mount the tip, when you uh, when you pipette onto mica and it's near some piezo. Sorry, I mean there's all kinds of things where uh, it can be, uh, you know, very difficult. Like just honestly, like physically difficult to make it work right. And like a lot of experiments, it's one of those things where you go through all these steps, and it maybe takes twenty minutes, maybe thirty minutes. And you know whether every step was perfect when finally you start imaging and either you see a good image of what's supposed to be there or you see some garbage. You realize, ah, like, this is this looks like it might be a bad tip or there's something wrong with the buffer or this is just something. This doesn't look like, you know, those beautiful AFM images you see in the papers. So because it's so difficult to get um, the AFM working and uh, some days it just doesn't work very well and you have to... Just say, all right, well, today was a bad imaging day. I guess I'll try again tomorrow. Uh, when we got a bunch of samples, a bunch of different samples, so we, we were doing computation, we were doing circuit computation, different circuits and different inputs to those circuits, we wanted to be able to image all the samples at once. So the way we did it is the seed from which our tiles grew was a DNA origami. And so we just had a very simple trick to, to sort of multiplex and be able to look at many samples at once, which is... When we would make, you know, a, a circuit out of these tiles that would process a particular input, we would take the seed it was growing from, and we would uh, pattern it with biotins that could be labeled with streptavidins that would show up under the AFM, and we just wrote, like, digits, essentially. We just, on each origami, we picked enough staple locations to be able to choose, you know, biotin, uh, biotinylated staples there or not, to be able to write, you know, three-digit sequences on there. Not even all the digits. When it started, it was only binary. 
Uh, and then we kind of modified it so it could write, like, instead of just three bits, it could write zero, one, two, three, or four in any of three positions. And then that was enough for, like, all the different circuits we did. Each one of them, we would assign it to some three-digit sequence. We'd write the sequence. Uh, and uh, and that's why we were able to, like, mix all our samples together, but know which one we were looking at when we looked at one. And then, um, yeah, I years after I had stepped out of the lab and hadn't used this anymore, I had this idea, okay, well, I want to propose uh, to my girlfriend, and uh, we wrote some digits, uh, but how do we write the digits? Well, they started with just bits. It started with just the ability to write a zero or a one, and we figured, oh, if we if we just put in these, it kind of looks like a two. If we put in these, it kind of looks like a three. So I bet I could, like, find some of those positions that we have, and make it look like a B or, or like an E. And, and I was under a constraint here that we weren't under doing the experiment. During the experiment, we had a flow of money from a grant, and we could order new staples with biotins if we needed. Now it was sort of like, ah, I don't know that I can spend uh, NSF grant money on new staples if we're not doing a new scientific project with them. So, all right, so I have a constraint. I know these staples are in the freezer, uh, I know that I can choose the ones, I, but I, I'm limited to, you know, positions that could spell out three digits. I've got to find a subset of those so that they spell out uh, words that I want to spell on the surface of this origami. And, some, and I just sat there with some software, some scripts that we had written to help us write the digits in the first place. Now I was using them to test out, okay... Uh, does this look more like a B or this? Like, initially I had an uppercase B and it didn't look good, but a lowercase B looked okay. And then eventually I figured out how to uh, write uh, six words on six different origamis that that, that spelled the, the, the phrase, uh, you know, if you looked at it under the FM, it said, you know, Beth Yim, uh, you know, will you marry me? And it was, uh, and then I, yeah, um, then, and th this was all in advance of a, of a trip that we had planned to Ireland to visit Damien Woods' lab. Uh, and so I, under the guise of just saying, hey, I want to show you what I, what I do for a living. This is one of these instruments we use, this AFM. Like, why don't you come and look? And I was sort of showing her, oh, here's how we operate. As you can see, things look kind of bad. And then uh, we, yeah, and then just kind of, and so it was, uh, it was basically six origamis mixed together that just landed in random positions. I did actually try what you'd think would be better, which is polymerizing the six in order, and that just didn't work. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to try to get that working, so I'm just going to settle for this alphabet soup of, like, the six words in random order. And then, yeah, and then, of course, made a, a little image where I cherry-picked the six best ones and stuck them in order in an image and then showed that. And that So that's how I proposed was in a windowless, like, phosphorescent white room with an AFM, uh, you know, just sort of staring at the at these images, and, uh, yeah, it worked, so. Um, and then I also, um, uh, you know, made, made another one uh, that spelled the word yes, in case she wanted to say yes, and then uh, said, well, okay, let's... Uh, you know, if you do accept, then why don't we have you reply the, the same way I asked the question? And I did some very rapid training and in uh, uh, how to pipette and how to mix things together. And she mixed stuff together, and we imaged it sometime later. And you know, so you can you can see the images of the, of the reply as well. So. Did you make the stables for no? 
I did not make the staples for enough. I, <laughs> I thought uh, we we don't need a fun scientific project to say no. We, we you could just say it verbally, and if that's the, the answer. But um, luckily, the the staples for no were not needed. Uh, and yeah, and I and I, I gave a talk about it at, at my wedding actually, and the slides are on my website if anybody wants to, you know, see how it worked. What are you most excited about, either now or in the future of our field? Um, I'm most excited about getting, uh, experimentally getting algorithmic self-assembly working. I mean, that's what my project was on, and um, it sort of demonstrated, I mean, it was like what, like, like a lot of experiments, or many people who do experiments feel this way, which is uh, the whole time, of the, the years and years that I spent on it, just had these nightmares like, uh, this isn't going to work, and the reason it's not going to work is uh, there's just something we're missing and all this theory that says algorithmic self-assembly should work, and it's the reason none of, you know, like, the, the, it took years, because, like, the, the nice results we got, we didn't have them until the end. If we'd had them earlier, we would have published a paper earlier, so I, the, the, the immense struggle it took to get it working, I'm sure this is common to a lot of experiments, like, was just telling me... <laughs> Uh, this voice of insecurity, like, this isn't going to work. Uh, and then eventually we, we did. We kind of made it work. And uh, and what we did was, you know, again, not the sort of full promise of theoretical algorithmic self-assembly that I learned about when I was a grad student that captivated me, that made me want to prove theorems on it. And once I finally got my hands on some pipettes, made me want to try to advance the ex experiments. But it was, like... A step forward and a, a big enough one that I thought, okay, great. I actually now am convinced that the full-on like theory of algorithmic self-assembly that says, you know, whatever algorithms can do, whatever a Python script can do, you can design, you know, self-assembling molecules that will, you know, carry out not only carry out that computation, but that can, you know, use that computation to drive what is it that forms. So, uh, I, you know. I would really like to see, you know, advances made there, and I believe that they, they can be. I mean, it was just an engineering challenge to scale up to the thing we did, and I think it's just an engineering challenge to scale up to the, the big old crazy complicated theorems from the the various theory papers that interested me in the field and then some of the ones I wrote. So, um, you know, that said, it's it's self-assembly, and right now in, in DNA nanotechnology, if if you want to just self-assemble something, and that's your only goal, is just make make something and you're happy for the size of it to be about the size of a DNA origami, then you just use a DNA origami, right? I mean, that's the most successful and reliable thing, but uh, but I do think that, like, some of the, like, tile and kind of monomer-based approaches are going to have their day someday, and it, it might be five years from now, and it might be 30 years from now, but I think... Uh, the, those are the key to like you know really scaling things up, like making making bigger structures, making structures that are sort of more more complicated, but you know cheaply without needing to like have like such a huge DNA scaffold to to fold up. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's what's most. It doesn't mean it's the thing that's going to work next. If you ask me, okay, what well, what's the big next thing that's going to happen? I don't know. It may not be that, but that'd be the thing I would want to to happen next the most. Uh, you were talking a lot about like your experience in graduate school and about the pressures of uh, publishing and getting into conferences and journals. What do you think? Um, like, what do you think of the current state of publishing with um, like open access fees, uh, publish or perish culture, 
Like, do you think it's problematic? And if so, what is the solution? Uh, so I guess those are two separate things. The, the open access thing is, uh, I, it seems like it's getting better. I think there's some of the publishers are now kind of bowing to pressure uh, to, to make stuff more open. And if they weren't doing that, my strong advice to every field outside of computer science would be do what computer scientists have done for decades, which is sign the agreement uh, that says like what you're going to do with your paper and then ignore it and put your paper on archive so people can access it anyway, which is just like, and, and no computer science journal has ever complained to a single computer scientist about this as far as I know. But we, this is what we've been doing for decades is like, enter in some agreement where they're the only one allowed to publish our paper and then we just go put our paper on our website and on archive anyway and uh and i think like you know that that some combination of like the the willingness of researchers to just do that to just say you know what i did all the work on this paper anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i want with it i don't care if you require a copyright form to be signed before i get to say i published it you know and now there's these like BioArchive is doing this for a lot of biological stuff. And I think there's a third one for some other field, but um, so that I think is going in the right. And then I think because of that, the journals don't want to lose relevance. So now suddenly they've seen the light and want to make stuff open access without charging people a lot of money. So, um, uh, but even if they don't, okay, just, just keep putting your paper online. And uh, I don't think, you know, but but again, I I am frustrated that you know some researchers don't, and probably not a not because they support the journals, just out of laziness. So it it is frustrating when there's like a recent paper, like po you know post nineties that I want to access and I can't, even though the the authors still have jobs and a website, and they just don't bother you know putting it on archives. So I I try to be conscientious to to put everything on archive. Um, and then, sorry, they said that that was two topics. The other, no, the other one was the publisher parish culture. Um, well, it's that I guess, like, yeah, it's it's an intimidating idea when you enter grad school, especially like especially if you enter grad school and you think, oh, what what grad school is going to be is just me like learning about whatever you know what I want to learn about, what interests me, and. And then come to find out, no, actually, you have to publish these papers, you know, like, I mean, you have to publish them if you want to get a job after, and even if you decided, I don't care, well, your advisor wants you to publish them, or they're not going to get tenure, or they're not going to get their grants, and so it feels very intimidating. Um, on the other hand, it's like, well, what else should we do? Uh, like, it's a job, and you... <laughs> You know, you're you're taking money from grant agencies, and that ultimately comes from taxpayers or from tuition money. That you know, some of which goes to teaching. But if you know, if you're in like a research lab, it's like you're um, you're probably not doing enough teaching to justify the the tuition that the students are paying. So in some sense, it's like, well, every job is do the thing that's the main activity of that job or perish. And in our case, the thing that's the main activity of the job is published. So it's like not, I don't know, it, it sounds, I think, more intimidating outside of academia than it feels inside. Where inside, it's like, well, we, we have to do something. Now, that said, there are, of course, terrible metrics people can use to try to evaluate, are you doing it correctly? They can do stupid things like count your number of papers and decide you're good or bad based on that integer. 
they can take other integers that seem more sophisticated, like your H index or your citation count, and can judge you based on that. And yeah, that's sort of fraught with problems, especially the more you go across disciplines, because uh, you know cer certain disciplines, uh, you know, you you write a paper on it, and immediately it'll have fifty citations, like before the end of the year. And others, it could be like the most important paper in that field, and it'll get up to fifty citations, you know, six years from now. So this is not really good for comparing across fields, and it's also the case that yeah, like there there are some papers I'm extremely proud of that have very few citations, and then a few that have a lot of citations, like, ah, that paper was okay, but I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's inherent quality is why it's getting cited that much, it's some other kind of thing, so, uh, so yeah, there's these, like, bad metrics that people can use, and oddly enough, I feel like, um, the kind of higher up I've gotten in academia, the, the more I see that, it's, it's maybe not happening more than it was, but it's more visible to me, because now I'm on hiring committees, and I, uh, and promotion committees and so forth. And so I see very explicitly things getting discussed where, yeah, like if you're, if you're not being evaluated by somebody who works in your field on the same topic you do, they kind of default to these metrics to talk about because what else are they going to talk about? If, uh, you know, like in my field, if I'm in theoretical computer science and then Somebody on the committee does, you know, they've never proved a theorem in their life and they do machine learning and they, but now it's their job to just evaluate me. Like, what do they do? Well, they, they ask a theoretical computer scientist, like, hey, what are the top conferences? And they count how many of my papers are there. And they, you know, it's like, what else can they do? Because somebody's got to like decide, do you get tenure? Somebody's got to decide, do you get hired? And yeah, ideally it would be somebody who works in your exact field, but maybe not. So, um, so in some sense, it's like, it's stressful, and it's, of course, not always fair. There's lots of bad stuff that can happen, but uh, I don't exactly know, like, the alternative, uh, right? I mean, there's, um, some people have proposed the alternative where we say, uh, yeah, we're still going to write papers, but we're not going to publish them. We're just going to put them on archive, and then whichever ones get cited, those are the important ones. Like, well... Okay, like, uh, but again, you're still kind of taking this metric like citations, and this is a, but like, mo papers that are highly cited, most of those citations are not like sort of deep citations. They're not like, oh, I'm citing this paper because it really moved forward my research and I really needed it. It's sort of like, it, it, you know, it got into a topic, it got into nature or something, and then things get, they get cited even if, and, but, you know, a lot of my citations, I'll look at them, and when I look at the summary, it's like they won't even get the result right, and I'm like, okay, cool, I got a citation, but they, they could, you know, m most citations are not by people who've even read the paper, so it's like this very indirect thing anyway. So yeah, like we'd we'd like to perfectly measure like impact in some sense, but it's hard to do, and yeah, the way we're doing it is like I I don't know that I could sit and design a better system. Like I I can criticize the system, I can get mad when it doesn't go my way when I get a paper rejected and the reviewers are like, they obviously don't know anything about the field or they do, but they say unfair things. I can, I can get mad at that, but I, I don't know the alternative. I, I don't know how to design an alternative. Uh, I certainly would not want to like immediately throw us all into something like, Oh, let's just get rid of journals and let's just always put our papers on archive. And 
people can make comments on them and turn it into like YouTube or something. And uh, instead, it's like I I don't know I I'm kind of scared of that. I um, so I actually don't think that the current peer review process is as broken as I've heard people say it is. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's uh, yeah. I, I actually wouldn't know how to fix the things I don't like without making other things even worse. So I don't know. So mostly I default to, all right, let me try to coach, you know, the people I work with, particularly the, the students on, hey, here's the ins and outs of this strange game we play that, like any game, once you set up the rules, it incentivizes certain weird things you sometimes have to do and certain weird discussions you sometimes have to have. Like, oh, like, you know, maybe this conference isn't the the best fit for this result, but it's more prestigious, so let's send it there. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, sometimes the right call, even though you might think, oh, no, just always send it to the place that's most interested. But I, yeah, so, but, like, for me, the place that's most interested is always the DNA conference, but I, yeah, like, um, also, when I get reviewed by my peers, like, people in my department, I always get comments like, oh, he publishes a lot in the DNA Computing Conference, and this is a you know, mid to low tier conference, its rejection rate isn't as high as uh, these other things. And so it's like, I I think that's a goofy thing to say, but also, yeah, it would be kind of be career suicide for, for me or for my students to just say, hey, the DNA is the best fit. Let's send everything we have there. Like sometimes we have to think in this different way. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I just sort of accept it. And I don't, I don't worry about it as much as I used to. A bit of a wildcard question. What do you like to do in the macroscopic world when you're not deep in the microscopic world? In the macroscopic world? Uh, yeah, so uh, one hobby I got really into was sitting in my house for a year. So that was, um, yeah, that was one thing. But I uh, uh, I guess the, yeah, the main things that get me out of the house nowadays are uh, I've tended to go on bike rides. I started just sort of riding my bike around a lot. So I, I do a lot of bike rides. Uh, I do a lot of hiking uh, with my wife and we just bought some kayaks. So now we started kayaking, even though it's apocalyptic and horrifying to kayak on lakes in California right now. We went to one that, uh, if you look at the Google uh, satellite images, the water is next to the parking lot. But when we got there, we had to hike these things over a quarter mile to <laughs> to get to the edge of the water because the lake was I think 40 it was, it was something like you know 12 meters below where it normally is so uh, but anyway we, we do we eventually get out to the water and get on the lake uh, and somehow lately I don't know if this is my midlife crisis but it, my wife's also doing you know, it when she got me into it is we've this summer started doing jujitsu so so I go and uh, yeah, roll around in pajamas for, for an hour every day or so. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dave. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. Thanks for listening.